Radio. This is Catholics Read on cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Kiara. And I'm Victoria. And today we are reading a short story, or we're commenting on a short story, It's only seven pages, people. It's really short. In fact, we're going to do this thing again that we did like a couple of weeks ago. uh, (laughs) Where, If you haven't read it, uh, look up The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. Omelas is Salem O Backwards. Um, Go look it up now. In fact, just just go do it. We'll wait. (laughs) So now that you've read it... Or, or you just chose to listen to the music uh, and, and, then, and then our voices again. Uh, we'll get started on the commentary of it. So, it's kind of hard to describe what it's about. And yet it'd be it's quicker so to easy. just read the story to you. It would we, be. we won't, but... It would be. It would be. <laughs> okay, well, Victoria. when was it written? No, no, no. When was it written? I don't know. I, it's, the, the, it's not here on my iPad. I think it's like 1973, 1970, I think. Yeah, let's go with that. By Ursula Le Guin. Actually, that explains French. a lot. I didn't know that. That now explains, that explains a lot. A lot. That now explains a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those stories that seems to me like, I don't know if you've ever read Andromeda Strain or some of the other sort of iconic 70s sci- you know, sci-fi sort of fantasy stories. It just had that feel. I'm like going, this is a kind of an older story. I don't know. It just, it just seems to me to make sense that it was written in 1973 and not somewhat more recent, like I assumed. Okay. I thought it was from the 30s. I don't even know why. That's what I was telling people okay. all through the week. <laughs> all no, when they were asking from the about 70s. it. I don't know. I think I know what you mean. I, have, I base that on on nothing, but I think I know what you mean. There's, there's something a There's a feel. You've got to read it. Go read it. You, there's a feel. You know what? You know what the feel is? It's that it's that part about um that comes right after the religion, yes, clergy, no bit about uh, about all the people in yeah, the streets. Yeah, I think maybe that's, that's extremely 60s and 70s. We'll get yeah. to that later and you'll yeah. know what we're talking about. Anyway. Okay. So <laughs> the story is about... I'm going into this blind because it's been like a week and a half since I read this. So, this story is about a city called Omelas and... Everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. There's no war... Yeah, it's, it's like it's John Lennon's Imagine. That's exactly John what I thought. Oh, and, and yeah. it's have you noticed that? Have you noticed the thing about like the there's no religion? I'm like, this is Imagine. <laughs> this whole thing is Imagine. But when was Imagine written? Slash, slash Probably the 1973. <laughs> Actually, no. When did John Lennon die? Okay, early it, 70s was Imagine. It was early 70s, definitely. Um, and yeah, happy, 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 joy, joy, city. It's fantastic, it's lovely, it's great. It sounds like It may may not actually be that great, I don't know, but, I mean, they're happy, right? Um, The the book, the story is quite, like, not very descriptive in some ways, in some ways it is. But anyway, the whole gist of the story is that it's this amazingly happy city where everybody's happy and it's joyful and the kids play in the streets, but the city hides a dark secret, and that dark secret that everyone knows about and finds out about when they're about nine, ten years of age, is that the reason for their joy and for the city's uh, great wealth, I guess, is that one child must suffer uh, and they're locked away in a basement and they're basically just beaten and given rubbish food and they live in this miserable life. Yes. Um, And the 
very short rest of the book simply says that some people ha- simply accept this. This is the way things have to be. And others refuse to accept this, but their only response is to walk away from the society. And it's not really known where they go, but they simply walk away. Now, that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's pretty much the story is Happy City, rubbish, bad secret. Uh, some people accept it. Some people walk away. Most people that's accept it. it. Most people yeah. accept it. Um, but there is so much that can be said about this. Victoria. Okay. Before Luke and Kiara talk about, I suppose, the ideology behind it, both philosophical, economical, and social. Yes. Mm-hmm. Something like um, that. Yeah. My starting point, I, <laughs> if you could see us in the office right now, um, Luke read this, what, a week ago. Kiara's going straight off her... Memory. You know, I read it. I read it this afternoon while I was the unending work. pit of her intellect, and I've got like all these I academic essays that are here because I had to prove a theory, and that turned out to be half right that I had. I was reading this, and perhaps those of you who have also taught narrative perspective for a whole term to year tens, like I have, were a bit more <laughs> attuned to this than others. But basically, I realised that there was uh, discrepancies between narration and perhaps even point of view and stuff like that and I thought that there might have been three narrators um, whose things had all been squished together. Both Luke and I just pulling (laughs) stunned faces here. It's that that picture of the Italian politician that's like (laughs) Is that where the meme comes from? The black and white one? Yeah, where the guys are like Oh, I finally know where that's from! Only Italian politicians. (laughs) Everyone else is too serious. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, um, because at, at some points um, this person talks about our ceremony, stuff like that, as if we are a um, citizen of Omalas. At some points he says, um, I, can't, I wish I could describe it better or um, it is unknown, things like that. So he could be this person, not he, uh, this narrator is outside. And sometimes it sounds like it's someone who's living there but is more critical. And sometimes it sounds like it's someone who's left. But none of these all go into one narrative uh, line. They all look like they've been chopped up and put together. And this is my idea. And so I thought, I'm going to have to go through academia to see whether people have thought the same thing. Turns out I was half right. But What, what... there's six different perspectives? No. <laughs> or is what, it one and a half? What most academics seem to believe is that there is a third person omniscient narrator, right? Similar to that of... I suppose, Lemony Snicket, and to some degree, Gaston Leroux. Basically, someone who knows everything that's going on, yet is still a person observing, making their own inferences, inviting us, breaking the fourth wall, to engage. And basically, it's just a whole bunch of stuff going on. I can't even really explain it. And the effect this has on the uh, novel in general is that we are almost, and one of the academics says, we're almost seduced into the story by language because it's so lush at the beginning and it draws you in. And if you're not convinced by the luscious language, it says, uh, let me tell you that the people were complex and not simple. And if you, you're still not drawn in, it says, well, it's got a dark secret, which I think they even ask for us. Are you... And all of this in seven pages, people. So this writer it's, is it's incredible. In, it's in, <laughs> this writer is incredible. It's just so intense. Let me just try and find where it is. Do you believe, do you accept the festival, the city, the joy? No? Then let me describe one more thing. Now, this no is read, you know, in one second, but it actually um, symbolises something very profound, and that is the the reader's acquiescence to be involved in this story. And Luke and Kiara will talk about this later in terms of what role we play in reading and being part of Omalas. We can't just say it's a story and what's going on there has nothing to do with us. That's not the point. 
It's an allegory, would you say? Yes? Um, Not an allegory, but it's meant to parallel with our own world. Yeah, it's a, it's a metaphor. I'd call it a metaphor. That's probably than a more apt term. Yeah, than an allegory, because allegory refers to something specific, whereas this is yeah. more general. But just the way it's written, and really, all, you know, you could listen to me all you want. Half of it's absolute rubbish, but uh, hey, read you it. you think Luke and I are doing any better? <laughs> read it, and you'll see what I mean about uh, this interesting complex relationship between the narrator, um, the various forms of writing, sometimes it's lush, sometimes it's scant, and the constant need for your um, participation in the story, whether you agree to it first and foremost or not, you're still in it. Continue. Mm. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. I mean, I'm just looking at it over it now, and I'm wondering if there's some kind of literary thing about the fact that one of the paragraphs is like two pages long. Anyway, um, <laughs> I just noticed that. I'm like, that's really well, weird. That's Why what... is it so long? That paragraph. Anyway, um, and this is how a difference do, how do between we... an economics student and a literature student. <laughs> yeah, I know, eh? You're, you're like saying, I feel like, you know, I'm just in awe of Luke and Kiara. I'm currently like that right now because I didn't even think of anything like that. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, yeah. yeah Props to Victoria for actually going to academia and researching her theory to see if it was right. Like, Yeah, I mean, my, my usual approach is I'll just go out all guns blazing and pretend I know stuff. Yeah, that's usually right. And not mine, try and back too. it up. Yeah, high yeah. five. <laughs> okay, so um, I guess what we would move on to now. I'm trying to think of a good segue between that and the philosophical side, but uh, just segue. <laughs> yeah, do it, Anna um, Corrin. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. We don't uh, want it. Well, I know. Actually, we won't do that. To Anna you. Corrin is the CNN Asia correspondent these days, Sorry. so she has the last laugh. That's true. <laughs> um, I guess the the most uh, from my perspective interesting thing about the story is that it brings up this whole idea of a society that is, uh, I guess, very rich uh, in a lot of senses on the back of suffering and despair. Um, In one way, I think that that kind of describes in some way the world that we live in, but I don't want to really touch on that so much at the moment. But what I think is the... The troubling justification for it, I guess I find that, to me, it sets up a little bit, in my perspective, a bit of a, I want to say false dichotomy, but I haven't quite worked out what that dichotomy is in my head right at this moment. I guess what it, what it says is, and the way that it justifies it, is that the people kind of have uh, really no choice in the matter, that this person, this child has to suffer. They're not entirely sure why the child's suffering makes their life better. It might simply be that it allows them to value what they have more because they see the suffering of this child, Um, but they're not entirely sure why, but they do know that that's just the way it is and that's the way it has to be. Um, Now, the problem that I find with this text is with, with the philosophy behind this justification is that it kind of throws out there the, the entire onus of, of, Uh, of evil and suffering is on the sufferer. So that is that the whole reason why suffer, or sorry, rather, the whole reason why sin is bad is because someone suffers, that everything is inflicted on the sufferer. And that's the only reason why suffering is bad. So if, for example, you were to find uh, a sin where a third party does not suffer in a sense, then it would not be a sin. 
that's kind of the thing that I get from from this text. I'm not sure if anyone else spotted it, but and so the reason why this is false is because sin in of itself, the only effect of sin is well, the effect of sin is not just only the inflicting on the sufferer, but on the person who inflicts the suffering and and is the perpetrator of the sin as well. Um, at the end of the day. The, the big thing about this, the big reason why sin is bad, is not only because of the, um, the turning away from the good or the suffering that's a, as a result, but the break in communion with, with our Lord is what's bad here. Now, of course, these things aren't arbitrary rules that are made up that if you break this arbitrary rule, that destroys your communion with God. Of course, these are reasonable things uh, that inflict a sort of suffering outside of simply breaking a rule. Um, and thus breaking your communion with God. And so what I find to be the problem with this is that it kind of basically just says, well, look, there's nothing that they can really do about it. This child is going to suffer anyway. And if we don't allow this child to suffer, we're all going to suffer anyway. I mean, really, is this child going to live live a good life even if we set it free? I mean, probably not. So therefore, we should just take it. But that's the problem. See, the problem is that they're completely ignoring how that afflicts the person who's sinned, how that affects them. They seem to have just confined the whole idea of suffering and sin to that situation. And the reality in the real world is that sin breeds death. It breeds death outside of the situation of the sin. It breeds death in the soul of the sinner, and it breeds death in their relationships with other people. A person who's, say, for example, addicted to pornography, it's not just the problem between them and the computer and the woman who's in the the pornography or anything like that. It affects their future relationships. It affects their relationships with women. It affects how they view themselves. It affects how they view their entire world and affects how they think. You know, all of these things, you know, that's how sin works is it's just like a virus and it just goes out and affects everything within a person. This story kind of just ignores that and is just like, well, this one person suffers, oh well. You know, I think possibly an apt uh, parallel to this is abortion. Uh, The Holy Father, Pope Francis, kind of speaks about this throwaway culture. And I think abortion really does um, affect that. That if we have a culture that says, you know, a person is only useful if other people want them. A person is only worth, uh, they're only worth saving or worth allowing to live or worth bringing up if someone wants to bring them up or wants to save them, and particularly if their mother or their father or whoever has the influence, we start having that approach to everything else. We start having that approach to people. You know, what about disabled people? What about people who are just frustrating? What about people who are, you know... Elderly. Elderly. What about people who are, you know, the world considers to just be dull bludgers and bludging off everyone else? You know, what what about X race for any, you know, name any particular reason? Exactly, exactly. And see, this is the thing here, is that it can't just be confined to abortion. You know, abortion is not just the problem here. And it's the same way feeding into abortion. Why do we have a culture that's so accepting of, of abortion? Because we have a culture that's accepting of contraception. We have a culture that's accepting of consumerism. We have a culture that's accepting of the idea that, oh, well, a whole bunch of people in China are basically living on slave labor so that we can have cheap stuff. You know, all of that feeds every part of our morality. This is the reality. This is how evil works. And I think that's the problem where if you start using this text 
as a reflection of reality with regards to morality and suffering and sin, you get put into this corner of segmenting off sin from its effects. And that's a problem. The other thing, too, that I think is interesting, this is going back to like what Victoria was saying and how the narrators draw you into the story and demand you participate. In a sense, it basically puts you into a position where you become one of two types of people who live in the city of Omelas when they find out about this poor, destitute, suffering child. Most people will justify it, you know, for various reasons, you know, as, you know, Luke, you know, as Luke was saying, but some walk away. And basically, you know, you become one of those two, you become part of that camp. You know, you kind of end up going, oh, yeah, no, that's that seems fair enough. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not you know, it's not an ideal situation, but, you know, oh, well. better him than me or you end up being one of those people like me when I finished it going like well stuff that like that's a horrible place to live pretty Mm. and all it is and happy it seems but you know it's not you know one black mark however small it might be is a black mark regardless of you know whether it's justified or whether it's um acceptable you know it's you know it's like it's like it's like it you know that little black mark might be a malignant melanoma that's under your skin and is multiplying and causing all sorts of havoc and will eventually kill you. I'm reminded of um, some friends of ours used to do this like drama skit uh, to explain kind of like how even little bits of sin can affect um, the whole thing. And they talked, I think it was like they had a glass of water and it's like, oh, would you like a glass of water? Oh, yeah, sure. And so, oh, I should tell you, there's... There's a um, there's a tiny little bit of feces in there, <laughs> and they're like, "What? What?" And I said, "Oh, it's only a little bit. Like, I mean, it's not even noticeable. It's just a tiny little bit of feces." Oh, but I don't want it. And like, oh, but it's only really just a tiny little bit. You you probably won't notice it. And it goes on and on. Um, and it's a little bit like what Kiara is just saying there. That I know my reaction to that was, yes, one child is suffering, you know, and I'm getting the fruits of that. You know, uh, chuck that in. You know, <laughs> I'm out of here. I mean, of course, there's, you know, moments for self-reflection here because I probably am living a life where I'm accepting that and just simply pushing out of my mind um, the aforementioned which, yeah, Chinese which is what some people do. example. Yeah, which is um, what some people do. Some people ju- go, about, go to the effort of justifying it. Some people just forget about it and r- rather not think about it. And other mm. people walk away mm. and mm. say, stuff this. See you later. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting how it brings that up. And I, I like that about the book as well, that it kind of forces you, as you mentioned, into that position where you have to kind of you have sit to make in a choice. Camps. Yeah. You have to make a choice. And then you also have to reflect and say, oh, if I actually justified suffering on anyone, you know, what if that was my child? Mm. Like, you should make you think, oh, wow, that's a terrible way to think. Maybe, mm. we should, maybe mm. I should find something better. Mm. But interestingly, Kiara... Uh, you're not Kiara. You're Kiara. I'm Victoria. Kiara. Mm. Victoria brought up before we started, and I was about to get into rant mode, and then stopped myself to save it um, for now. <laughs> yeah, concerning concerning, uh, I guess, the morality or the ethics rather of these two camps. That although Kiara and I immediately stepped into the I would just walk away camp, that that's not necessarily the best approach according to a lot of academics who've commented on this. Well, yeah, I can't I can remember when I first read this. This is before I needed to test out uh the nar- narrative theory I had. Um was that yes, I would walk away. And when I was talking to a friend about this while we were hanging out washing in our backyard, um she said, um yes, of course I would walk away. I would always walk away. And I said, "Have you thought about the fact that we're living in Omalas?" And she said, "I'm one of the ones that has stayed." 
and she was just quiet and then this cockatoo went off but um, <laughs> straight up <laughs> yeah, yeah. and um mm-hmm. but now that i've had a chance to read read some of the academic points of view um a lot of people are under the opinion that uh Le Guin and um james and james would be william james the american uh psychologist um and ph- philosophical thinker of america so i'm saying the best thinker that's come out of america certainly in the 19th century um, 20th century. 19th century or 20th century? I'm sure it was 19th, 19th. yeah. Oh. 19th um, slash early 20th. So they all oh, say okay. something along the lines of neither Le Guin nor James, however, would necessarily applaud the members who choose to leave this community, uh, which runs along the thought that um, not to vote is to vote. Not to act is to act. It is to to abdicate this responsibility is to, ta- is to still have responsibility but not act. Um, basically, there's this bit that I found so interesting. And it said, it talks about this price to pay for our gaze. And this is the, the gaze onto the child. And I was thinking about this because academic articles very rarely make sense to me. And it never told us what the price was. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the price for this gaze is action. The um, onus to make change. And so that is why most a lot of the academics are saying that the most noble and moral choice would be to stay in Omelas. However... Luke and Kara are talking about the fact that this is an unchangeable situation. I didn't yeah, understand that. Me, it seemed to me that... I don't know if you thought that, but it seemed quite clear in the story that this mm. was an unchangeable situation, that yeah, it would not be fixed. I saw it more as this was a... Uh, that was the the public motto. The um, Yes, these things cannot be changed. It must always be like that. And I feel that that's what our society is like now. It must be like this. We cannot even imagine another world, which is why the narrator very, very smartly um, says that this world that those who leave Omelas go to is beyond um, beyond language uh, accessible, beyond thought accessible. And I think he does that because for us, a world without... A world Without that suffering. is a world that is not om- omlas is is almost impossible to understand. Though us as Catholics have a bit of a privilege, we have I think an understanding or not an understanding, a hope, a look towards a paradise. In which case, paradise is not omlas. Mm. Um, what I was saying, saying something. Um, I think you pretty much said what. I don't know what I was what saying. Was. I think it's yeah. done. That the, a number of commentators on this would say that to stay and to try and do something to try guess, and yeah cause change the, cause change now i just want to read out the part in question that i think i was referring to when i say that it seemed like it was obvious that it couldn't be changed um it mentions no matter how well the matter has been explained to them this is the children who are then taken to see the child in question these young spectators are always shocked and sickened at the sight they feel disgust which they thought themselves superior to they feel anger, outrage, impotence, despite all the, ex- all the explanations. They would like to do something for the child, but there is nothing they can do. If the child were brought up in the sunlight out of that vile place, if it were to be cleaned and fed and comforted, that would be a very good thing indeed. But if it were done, in that day and hour, all the prosperity and beauty and delight of Omelas would wither and be destroyed. Those are the terms. To exchange all the goodness and grace of every life in Omelas for that single small improvement to throw away the happiness of thousands for the chance of the happiness of one, that would that would be to let guilt within the walls indeed. You know what? You're right, Victoria. Actually, mm. no, you're right. Now that I read that again, um, it's not an unchangeable situation. No. It's an unchangeable situation it's... in the sense of, oh, people might have to 
lose suffer their, a little bit, lose their privilege, lose their pleasure. Um, which is to which how I would our say, world the works. Catholic response is suck it up and do the best you can. Pleasure as a resp- as a result of of some of sin of someone and someone suffering is not is not is hollow. It, at the it's hollow at best. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you're right. Like you know, you see that. You, see, you kind of see that now, but obviously when I read the bit about people walking away, I'm like, yeah, no, I think that's kind of what I'd have, you know, feel I'd have to do, particularly because, you know, what, you know, again, it's still like, it's, it's a classic consequential, it's a classic, you know, children on the tracks and the trolley. You remember doing, you remember doing ethics one, you know, ethics one, you haven't done ethics 100 yet. You will do ethics 100. And no, you will- I'm doing masters, eh? Sorry, we're talking about our personal lives. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. You even, you, yeah, Luke's I'll about, do something. You will do some yeah. ethics and you will have to face consequentialism and the classic dilemma explaining consequentialism as a, you know, frame, you know, ethical framework is this situation where you've got an out of control the train, train. Yeah, out of control oh, train yes. barreling down a track and the track has a fork. On one, on the left-hand fork, there are little children, you know, like ten little children playing around on the tracks. Train's too fast; you can't stop the train. On the other track, there is one old elderly train worker who's doing some repairs on the track. You have to make the train go one way or another. Yeah. You know, what do you do? You know, I what's mean, your ca- initial response is always, "Well, old train worker." Yeah. Um, exactly, but, but that's oh. not a good answer. <laughs> you know, you've got to stop the train. Ultimately, mm. to really fix the situation, you've got to stop the train. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, you know and, the, you know, and um, so I, when, I, when I had to face that and, you know, the lecturer asked, you know, so what would you do, the old man or the little children? And I just said, I'd rip the tracks up. And Break like, the system. Yeah, rip the tracks up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's one, a- of, it's one of those things that I think, again, as I was relating to before and I think I've mentioned this in other episodes as well is that especially with regards to um, to Flannery O'Connor mm. oh, she was, great. was that something that she always points out is that her stories are always tragic and horrible and end in horrible terrible ways dark and gothy yeah but what they point towards is that our life our current life is just a tiny tiny little thing as compared to our eternal life and that there's something more here and that dilemma, or any of these dilemmas that are brought up kind of exist in a world which denies the transcendent, exists in a world that denies that there is anything eternal uh, that results from, from our suffering, from our decisions. And so that's why partially, I mean, aside from other problems with it, but that's why partially why things like consequentialism and that are problematic because... They're basically nothing more than like balance sheets, or they kind of take yeah. a financial approach to. It's to a co- it's, it's a cost counting. Yeah, and like, some... we have no idea what's going on. We have no idea. In that example of the old man and the te- and the ten children, for all we know, those ten children could have could have had perfect grab... souls and could go to heaven. You know, and that old man needs an extra ten years for his salvation. We don't know. We have no idea. You know, but you know, not only that, or those, or you know, one of those ten children could have been, it could have been a little kid, remarkably like Adolf Hitler, and by you know choosing to save the children, you've then unleashed a, you know, racist horror on the entire world. Yeah, we just don't know, <laughs> and that's why, when you deny the transcendent, you rip it out. Ethics becomes incredibly problematic because it starts trying to become bean counting morality it starts becoming it starts denying certain things about morality and simply making it about say for example pleasure or 
you know, vague common notions good. Or, you know, of vague, common good. Vague notions of common good or the social contract, Luke's favourite word. Oh, yeah. Victoria <laughs> brought up the term social contract and it just... It, it, it arced, it, it arced it Luke up a little bit. Some, it it, uh, it re-emerged some bad memories from my <laughs> management ethics classes from a number of years back. Um, but yes. Yeah, he nearly fell out of his chair. It was funny. <laughs> anyway, we're actually almost out of time. We didn't really speak about much, it felt like. I think because I went on for about a 10-minute rant. Yeah, well, it's okay, Luke. You have to get those out occasionally. I do, I do. It, it's It's helpful. <laughs> anyway... So, is there, Victoria, Kara, was there anything else you wanted to add? Uh, I suppose the last two things I'll add um, are, are these. Number one, um, there's always the possibility that those that leave Armalas can come back with renewed fervor to change things. Just because you've left a situation doesn't mean you cannot come back and change it. And number two, um, in terms of the literary structure of the story, it starts with us entering Armalas and it ends with some leaving. So, you've got to have a really good think about who you are and what path you'll take. Will you stay and why? Or will you go and why? I, I, I mean, look, I was completely... I didn't do any reading or research or, common, you know, sort out any commentary of the story. And just, the, you know, the thing that I took away from it was, you know, you know there, there's always a third way. You know, the story might tell you that you only have two choices, but there's always a third way. And that way is generally the most difficult way to follow because it's a middle ground. It's somewhere between leaving and somewhere between justifying. It's somewhere between, you know, it's it's just it's just and that's and that's all. And funnily enough, I've all, you know, time and time again, like every single ethical moral conundrum that's ever come up from a Catholic perspective, the way forward is always the third way. It's the way between two extremes. It is so interesting that you have brought this up because there is a video that's just come out mm. very recently, the film called The, the Third, Third Way, Way which, is, which deals with, the, with homosexuality and the Catholic Church. And, it, and for a little while, it, um, you see this tension between fully embracing the homosexual lifestyle and uh, crushing it and saying this is, uh, that what you are in, intrinsically is, is evil. It's bad. And it talks about this third way, this freeing third way, and that is the way of the Catholic Church, which is, is love and acceptance. Um, so it's just very interesting that you brought that up. Yeah, but mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's consistently like that. Like you look at all the Gospels when Jesus is always presented with a, with a prop, you know, with a conundrum, you know, as some Pharisees trying to trick, you know, trying to set him up or whatever. He always <laughs> takes the middle. He always says, you know, he always takes the middle way. He always... And interestingly, I think it's because I'm not about to quickly run through every gospel and um, every situation where our Lord has had to face off with the Pharisees. But just in regards to all of the things that you've been talking about there, all of these conundrums, is that the problem is that they often set up these these bad or false dichotomies because they're looking at uh, the wrong characteristics. They're looking at it from the wrong angle. So... Mm-hmm. In the homosexuality example that you use there, they set up the example of, okay, either it's the best thing ever, it's good, it's amazing. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. Or you're a horrible sinner and you're going to hell. Like, those are the, seem to be the two options. But that's looking at it from the wrong angle. The right angle, you're meant to look at it from a person is made in the image and likeness of God. And everyone has a cross. Everyone has a cross, exactly. And so, how do we look at it from that angle? With mm. the example of uh, of Omelas, the problem is is that it's set up this false dichotomy of uh, 
you can either stay and accept it or walk away. When you're looking at it at the wrong angle, you're not questioning, but can we actually change this situation? Uh, is the idea that our whole city, you know, having to give up our pleasure, the worst possible thing in the world? Is that actually a correct idea? Is that even the best idea? You know, these are all looking at things from the wrong angle. And when you kind of look at it in a new light, look at it from another angle, you can always see that third way that Kiara brings up. And as Kiara mentions, it's usually the right way because our fallen nature just makes us always look at things the wrong way. And the other thing too that I think that is to be noted that not once is this city called great. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's a nice place to be. There's lots of joy and fun and all that sort of thing. It's aesthetically pleasing. It's aesthetically pleasing, but it is not great. Mm. And if you look at all the great cities and civilizations and people of the world, they've always been incredibly noble and also not so incredibly noble, to put it bluntly. Mm. And mm. our greatest achievements as human beings have always co- have always come with a, um, you know, have have always come, you know, have have involved the good and the bad. If you know what if if you know what yeah. I mean. And what makes a great civilization is not pleasure; it's actually, you know, and you know, or this desire to be nice and perfect, even if it, you know, and you know, desire to be nice and perfect and pretty. That's not what greatness is. That's a superficial way of understanding what goodness is. Like goodness is messy. Goodness is um, being greater than what you seem to think you can achieve and being, you know, going outside of what the normal boundaries, you know, normal boundaries are. Well, true or- goodness is meant to have a complete reliance on God. I mean, any civilization that you describe there that basically tries to, through our own human efforts, and that's it, ends up simply being a Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. Nothing more. So, yeah, it's a really interesting little story, and mm-hmm. I highly recommend everybody read it. It doesn't take long. It takes about ten minutes. Yeah, it's not long at all. It was very quick. So, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. Done. Done. Which doesn't say much because it was really short. Um, <laughs> in fact, I think we've been speaking for probably around about four times as long as it takes to read this this uh, short story. Yeah, so, I mean, just read the short story. Seriously, you don't have to listen to us babble. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, next time on Catholics Read, what are we doing, guys? And so, in the interest of transparency, we didn't just come up with an idea in five seconds, but we've actually spent a good ten minutes discussing this. But we've decided on... I've got the line which which is over <laughs> in my head because that's what we were just talking about, but it's not that. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, part one. one. By uh, Douglas Adams. Yes, Douglas Adams. Thank you, good reads. <laughs> All right, so that's what we're doing next time. So strap yourself in and get ready for a ride around the galaxy. Uh, the universe, the man. The universe. Yeah, the, the first one's called Restaurant at the End of the Universe, I'm pretty sure. Oh, There you go. All right. Well, with that, we shall say toodaloo and au revoir to you. Goodbye. Bye. (laughs) That was an episode of Catholics Free from cradio.org.au. 